the timing is telling. At 3.52 a.m., September 7, 2012, the night Faith Hedgepeth was murdered, a text went out from her phone. It was sent to the phone of Ty McNeil, on-again, off-again boyfriend or romantic partner of Faith's. Faith's father, Roland, long ago got copies of his daughter's text messages. Here is what Faith's final text said. Text going from Faith's phone to Ty Michael McNeil, and it says, I know you're probably sleeping, but I just want to let you know that I love you. Not a day goes by that you don't cross my mind. I know it will be like this the rest of my life because of what we've been through together. Besides that, I still feel the same, and I still love you the same. Sorry for being in my feelings, but hey, without feelings, we wouldn't have life. Sometimes I feel like you are my life. But that text message to Ty McNeil's phone about 38 minutes before Faith's roommate Karina Rosario left the apartment, left the door unlocked when she did, is just plain mysterious on several fronts. In fact, when police released a trove of documents about the case several years ago, those records mentioned Faith's final text message before the 3.52 a.m. text but not that last text. Does it mean it was important enough to hold back? Well, it's out now. The dilemma is, does or did it matter in a case that in so many ways is puzzling to its core? A case where sometimes it feels as if very little is what it appears to be. This is Pursuit, the podcast, season one, episode nine the murder of 19-year-old Faith Hedgepeth. I'm Tom Gasparoli. When Faith's father, Roland, first secured a copy of that final text from his daughter's phone, one of the first things he thought was, something's not right. As you look at it, just some of the things about the way it's written don't sound like your daughter. You've said that you don't think uh, Faith wrote that text, that last text to Tom McNeil's phone. There, there are things about the text that are not consistent with what I normally saw in Faith's text. And you got many casual texts from Faith. Yes, I did. I had many, a lot of texts from Faith. Because this is still an open investigation, Roland Hedgepeth doesn't want to be specific about the anomalies he noticed. I don't know how to elaborate on that any further right at the second, okay? But if Faith didn't type that text, who did? Was it somehow an attempt to throw off investigators, or was it real? The mystery deepened when I learned more about Ty McNeil himself, what he said about the text the same day Faith died, and what I've learned about how he sometimes treated Faith. The two met on the first day Faith arrived at UNC, during freshman orientation. For two or so years, their connection had high points and low points, some of them alarming. Faith's family didn't know about the low points until after she was murdered. No one's ever been arrested in this case, DNA or no DNA match, and no one has matched even after hundreds of tests. Just about anyone could be involved, could be culpable. Now let's go back to Friday afternoon, September 7th, hours after Faith was found dead. 
on the way there, we were almost to Durham on 85. Connie Hedgepeth remembers every minute of that day, every tear, every word, everywhere she went and what she did. It was vivid and horrible. The day she found out her daughter Faith was dead. And this whole time you still don't know what happened? No, still don't know what happened. I spent the better part of one evening with Connie some time ago now, after she got home from work. We sat in her late parents' home, in the small kitchen. You've heard from Connie before about the moment she heard about her daughter. An hour or two later, in the car on the way to the Chapel Hill Police Department, she got a wholly unexpected call. So then my phone rang again, and it was Ty. Connie and Ty McNeil had met and knew each other, but not well at all. And this phone call came just as the first word was spreading that a young woman had been found murdered in Chapel Hill. He said, Miss Connie, is it true? And I said, yes, it's true. I said, um, they already got it on the news, so it's true. And I said, I'm on my way to Chapel Hill to the police department now. I'm, we're on our way up there. And so he said, okay. It wasn't until much later that Connie thought about that call. I was thinking when she told me about it, why in the world would Ty McNeil, at the time a former boyfriend, think it's okay to call the mother of a murdered woman within hours of her daughter being found? And there's this. I was thinking, well, how did he get my phone number? I wouldn't think that she would give it to him because it wasn't in the need to give it to him because they won't together or anything. And so I called the Chapel Police Department and I told them about it. And I said, I just don't understand how he got my um, phone number. But again, that was later when she really started wondering about it. The day Faith died, when Connie arrived at the police department, something else entirely unexpected happened. Ty McNeil showed up there. But why? What kind of sensitivity does that show? What was he trying to prove at that terrible time? A time that should have been private. It's unusual behavior, and unusual behavior draws attention. And I saw him out there. We were still talking to detectives, and um, of course, Beth was in there with me because she was like a grief counselor. He'd been out there maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes or so. And so I told them, I said, I need to go out here and see him. And I went out there, and I just, I heard he, you know, we embraced and hugged each other. And then out of nowhere, Ty McNeil told the mother of a murder victim who'd been talking to detectives and being comforted by a grief counselor, that Faith had sent him a text the night before. It sounds to me like he was making this tragedy about him. Why? Why was he interjecting himself into the most delicate of situations a family could ever face? He said, the strangest thing happened. I got a text from her this morning. And it was a rather long text. I said, well, what did it say? 
And uh, he said, well, she was saying something about that, you know, she uh, still cared about me and she was, still loved me. And he said, but it was that was a strange text from her because we hadn't been seeing each other. A strange text, Ty said, that didn't really make sense. Connie Hedgepeth wasn't really thinking about why this man had showed up at the police department and why in the world he was telling her all this. And it was months later that Connie Hedgepeth, still thinking about the Ty McNeil phone call and the text, decided to contact Ty, in part to see how he was doing. But she had other reasons, too. She as well thought that maybe Faith did not write the text. In response, yet another surprise from Faith's one-time boyfriend. He just said, well, it sounds like something she would say to me. And I'm like, I, it just, that, that, when he said that, it kind of threw me because I was like, well, if that was something strange right after her death, why is it now sounding like something that she would say to you? I don't, I didn't get that. It just, the story, just, the story changed. I mean, to me it did. It just sounded like it changed to me because it sounded totally opposite, opposite from what he had told me at the police department the day of her murder. Somewhere along that time period, Faith's parents learned about what sounds like very aggressive and controlling behavior by Ty McNeil. Ty's impatience, if he was trying to get in touch with Faith, concerns me here. You had heard that Ty, when he wanted to know what she was up to, he wanted to know. He wanted to know. And he would do whatever he had to do to find out. And that wasn't all. Kiara Dixon, Faith's close friend her first year at UNC, has more on Ty McNeil. A lot more. Can you just tell me what kind of relationship they had when they had it and your read on how he treated her? Speak for me and a lot of her friends, we did not feel like that was a healthy relationship for her because whenever you would like turn your phone off and like like just isolate yourself away from everybody just to, like to be around him and nobody knew where you were and then you pop back up oh i was with ty that's not healthy you know why why would you need to do all of that you know there were times people were looking for her we could not find her we didn't know where she was she wasn't answering her phone and then she popped back up oh i was with um i was with ty that whole time and that's where we were like this isn't good like this 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 isn't healthy for you um I mean, they argued. Um, have I known for him to like ever hit her? No. Um, has she told me like he's like pushed her down? Yes. She um, told you that. Yeah, yeah. He pushed her down. One time it happened in the apartment. He pushed her down like some plastic tub and it broke. I just know he got upset and he pushed her into or pushed her and she fell on it. A hard plastic storage tub, she said. Yeah, broke it. It broke it. And I was like, what? Kiera says she told Faith then and had told her before that Ty McNeil was not good for her, maybe not safe for her. So, I mean, I was, what kind of friend would I be to not tell her she was in something that I thought was toxic? Freshman year was the first incident. Kiera and Faith were living in the same dorm on the UNC campus. They spent a ton of time together. Sometimes Kiera slept in Faith's room, her bed, when she was gone. One night. I slept in her room that night. Um, he came 
in in the middle of the night and he flipped the lights on and pulled the covers back because he thought it was her but it was me and he was like I'm sorry do you know where Faith is and I was like no and then he left out the room it was it was really early like after after partying hours like after two o'clock like you're because she's not answering the phone you came to her came to her room assuming it was her bust open the door flip the lights on and then pull the covers back and you think it's her but it's me and you're asking where she is so it was like what no that's that's just that's too much just because she's not answering the phone he was like I'm sorry do you know where Faith is and I'm like no I don't no I don't know where she is like the force and the aggression like that was just too much because she wasn't answering the phone it was it was just too much I've covered enough cases of violence against women to know that it's often part of a pattern, often an escalating pattern. Ty has said he was asked by police to submit DNA and basically never heard anything back. If he'd matched what was left at the murder scene, obviously he would know. But to me and others, it's always seemed possible that more than one person may be involved in Faith's murder and he or she didn't have to be on the scene when the attack happened. Chapel Hill Police Assistant Chief Salisa LeHue has said this. I would be very surprised if only one person out there knew exactly what happened and could walk us through the steps of that night. It's possible that more than one person knew about this before, during, or after. I think it's possible, yes. And knew about it in a potentially criminal way. Perhaps. Now let's hear from Ty McNeil. To his credit, he called me back when I reached out to him. Our subsequent conversation, edited here for brevity and clarity, was interesting and concerning. So I'm doing a true crime podcast on Faith's case. Okay. And I just wanted to see if I could talk to you for a couple minutes. I do have some difficult questions for you. Primarily, I have questions about the last text to you what you've told uh, her mom about that text. I have questions about whether you were ever uh, physically uh, rough with her. Yeah. And I have questions about how you got the mom's phone number uh, to call her the afternoon that Faith was found, those sorts of things. Absolutely. Those are all fair questions. Ty wanted to speak only off the record said he'd been portrayed unfairly before. I did not agree to go off the record, and we kept talking. On the challenging questions, or what appear to be challenging questions, if the answers are simple, you know, you can tell me right now any way you want, and we're done. From my perspective, the context context to those questions, um, and and the nature that, that, you know, I'll give you the answers to, they don't really help. I dated Faith for, you know, off and on for a year and a half. I was close with her family. That's how I knew her mom. Well, she wondered how you got her phone number. I, you know, drove with Faith to meet um, her mother um, on a couple of occasions. So I can't really remember the origin of how I got her number, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't too crazy about how, you know, how I got her number though. And then she says that you once told her at the police station that the text didn't make any sense based on what you all were doing or not doing at the time. And then later she talked to you and you said that they did, that it did. 
Yeah, no, it, what I what I told her was that uh, when we were talking about the uh, the text message, she said the faith typically hadn't really like opened up in that nature. So she and I had an understanding of one another through our relationship um, where we were very much in sync with how the other person felt about each other, about one another. But we each had our own individual life, you know, scenarios going on that um, we had gotten to a point that we were, we were better off as friends. Um, which is kind of where we were at. So, I mean, to see that text message come out, you know, it was kind of, it, 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 it wasn't in her character to, to send that, but it didn't, it wasn't out of context either because we made, we were in love with, we, we were in love with each other. So, um, you know, I mean, at various points or the whole time, um, at various points, I mean, I, I don't think we ever fell out of love with each other, but we had our own individual lives to kind of move on and live as well. So, but we, we, I mean, we still like kept, kept communication, close communication in terms of, you know, that message, like there, there was never a point where I felt like there was a, a lapse of, you know, love or, you know, rescinding of, of love for one another. And that was pretty much understood. So, I mean, that's what helped us be friends, you know, such good friends that, you know, after after our relationship ended so you um, so you basically think connie misunderstood your comments yeah, about it yeah 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 she just misunderstood another question whether you have ever pushed faith yeah or been physical with her in any way there was a situation where i did me and faith were on the bed and i did push faith um it wasn't anything like where I continuously pushed her. What happened was uh, she and I were talking, she and I were kind of going back and forth. Um, and that that's what spurred that. Um, so it was, it was I, I pushed Faith, um, but we were sitting on the bed and I and pushed her. Yeah, I pushed her and then I got up and walked away. That, that so the- and Something the, broke, right? The, a tub, a, a plastic no, tub no. or something? No, uh, nothing broke. No, no, nothing broke. Was that the only time you were ever physical with her? Yeah, that was the only time that we were that we were ever physical. So the way, it, so or that hearing you that were you ever can, physical. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Honestly, from the controlling standpoint, is just wanting the best for her. You know, I, I saw her getting in the situation, situation, situations with her friends and stuff. That as you know, someone who cares about another person, you know, you don't want to see. You just want to make sure that they're. T they're they're not being naive and taking the best care of themselves as possible as they possibly can. So there are a few people who thought that you were controlling in terms of wanting to know where she was and yeah. she didn't answer the phone yeah. storming into her room once. At, at a no, door. that, that, that definitely happened, but there's context behind that as well. She knew where I was coming from um, with certain things and, you know, ultimately the fact that we were able to still like be such good friends, you know, that, that, that kind of attests to like, she knew my heart was in a good place. Like I, I didn't, I, I just wanted the best for her essentially. I asked Ty McNeil about his alibi for the hours around the murder. And I was with um, a, a girl by the name of Ashley. Um, is there any way for me to confirm that? Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily want you to <laughs> reach out to Ashley, but um, so I, I, I don't well, know think how about you, it. Yeah, I don't know how you confirm that, but um, yeah, I was I was with someone else that night. Ty did not respond to Faith's final 3:52 a.m. text before she was murdered, 
until 12.29 p.m. the next day, Friday. I have a copy of it. Ty's text reads, Wow, that means a lot, Faith. I never knew you felt that way. Faith had been found dead about an hour and a half before that text was sent. A few hours later, Ty McNeil called Faith's mother to ask if it was true. It's a mystery for me, um, just trying to piece all this together, because even at the, at, the, at the core, it's just, it's just still hard to really fathom. And I just kind of put it in God's hands to, you know, um, that at some point when the time is right, you know, everything comes out the surface. Then Ty McNeil volunteered this. I have, you know, I have a tattoo of faith on me, you know, so yeah, just, you know, she was, she was an important person, you know, to me. And that was that with Ty McNeil, a man who appears to believe he knows what's best for women. That can be dangerous. Again, clearly it wasn't Ty's DNA found near Faith's body and on a murder weapon at the crime scene. Does that, hands down, clear him of involvement or knowledge? Or anyone else who's been tested but not forensically linked? The answer would have to be no. That also applies to Faith's high school hometown sweetheart from Warren County, Alex Demery. I do know police became interested in Demery. I am too. As I understand it, the pair continued to sporadically see each other while Faith was at UNC. Sometimes it may have been romantic. Often they were more or less just friends, I'm told. Now and again, Alex would stay at an apartment Faith was living in, not long before she moved in with Karina Rosario. And I've learned that sometime pretty close to the day Faith was murdered, Alex apparently had a very big question for Faith. You know, Alex's mom told me that uh, Alex had asked Faith to marry him that week. She never told me what Faith's answer was. Faith never said anything. Faith never said anything. How did Faith respond to Alex Demery's proposal? A no could have upset him, no question. Did she say she wanted to think about it? Did she say yes and tell no one? The timing of this marriage proposal, so very close to the day Faith was murdered, just begs questions. Unfortunately, Alex Demery has proved very elusive to try to talk to. I reached out to him on social media. Five weeks later, Demery responded, saying, We'll talk soon. Thanks for keeping her name alive. I wrote, We need to resolve this possible conversation. Demery replied, I don't trust Easy, and it's not easy for me to talk about it. I will contact you soon. We made general plans to meet and talk the following weekend. I never heard anything back. For someone who felt so deeply about Faith, someone who loved Faith for many years and appears to have asked her to marry him, it's odd over seven years that he would never speak out about her murder, make an appeal for help, for information. It's odd that he just won't take any questions. Some time ago, I spoke with his father, Bennett Demery, when I didn't have any luck reaching Alex. He told me his son was called in by police for some very tough questioning relating to Faith's death. Bennett Demery described some of what his son went through with police. He said they'd asked his son to take his shirt off so investigators could look for scratches, marks, anything to suggest he'd been in a struggle. The son told his dad that in another interview with police, a detective repeatedly and harshly said, you need to give us a name, 
Give us a name. The son told his father he kept answering, I don't have any name. I don't know anything. Alex's dad also says his son submitted a DNA sample in the case. He has told me, and this is a quote, If I ever thought my son was involved in killing Faith, I'd be the first man to put him in my truck and take him down to Chapel Hill to the police department. I knew Faith nearly her whole life, since she was itty-bitty. I care about her. I want to know who did this. If it were my son, I'd know by looking at him. And so be it. I asked Faith's friend back in college, Kiera Dixon, about Alex Demery. She was around him quite a bit for a time when she was living with Faith. He, like, he really loved Faith. Like, when he was, when he was there, like, you could tell, like, he really loved her. He's not someone you thought, oh, Alex could have done this. Definitely not. Heck no. You know, no. (laughs) Uh Uh-uh. Never thought that ever. But no matter who police have looked at, and they've looked at a lot of people, they've always said the key is in the DNA. I get that. More than 800 people have been tested. But it's not the only key if more than one person was there at the crime scene, or more than one person was involved. Yes, finding that match is critical, but in seven years, no one has matched. A few years ago, after working with a company called Parabon Nanolabs, Chapel Hill Police released what's called a phenotype of at least one person they believe was involved in the murder of Faith Hedgepeth. An image of how science, ancestry, and geography say a person who left that DNA might look. The image, which you can find on PursuitPodcast.com, is of a young man in his 20s with dark hair, brown or hazel eyes, and what you might call an olive complexion. Parabon has said the man in the depiction is, quote, very strongly Native American and European mixed ancestry, or Latino. But several years after the phenotype in Faith's case was constructed and made public, still, no one's been arrested. I've gotten a series of tips and images about who it might be, based on that phenotype, and passed them on to Chapel Hill Police. Who knows how many tips investigators have gotten, but still nothing. Seven years later, does this man still look like the image formed from the DNA? Did he ever? As for the genealogical detective work, using public DNA databases to find distant relatives of the person with the damning DNA, and then spreading out until you can identify a possible suspect, it's been at least a year since Chapel Hill Police looked into it, and there's no meaningful result that we know of yet. Again, Assistant Chief LeHue. I don't want to go in any further as to where we are in the process, nor um, kind of um, explain any results that we've received because it's still an ongoing investigation and we do have um, people that we do need to reach out to and answers that we need. Technology may be the way this case is finally solved, but if it doesn't work, it may very well come down to this. Someone needs to talk someone who knows something important, but just hasn't come forward. I asked CHPD's LeHue if she had one primary line of inquiry, one area of hope about who might know and might talk that she's always felt is the most promising line of inquiry. I'm sure you've had investigative journeys that make more sense than others throughout and still do. And two, you don't want to reveal what your sense really is. True? True.
In episode 10 of Pursuit, how might a break be made? If you think she's holding back information that can lead you to finding out what happened to that little girl, then you start living on top of her in her head wherever you can live. That's next time in episode 10 of Pursuit. Pursuit is available on most major podcast sites. If you like it, please rate, review, and subscribe. I appreciate your support. You can also find and listen to episodes on PursuitPodcast.com. If you have information or thoughts for me on the case, in writing or via an anonymous voice mailbox, go to the contact page on the website or reach out on social media. The number for Chapel Hill Police Crime Stoppers is also on PursuitPodcast.com. There is currently a potential $40,000 reward available in the Faith Hedgepeth murder investigation.